Ramin Shokrzad is a noted guest on NPR and a contributing author on Gamasutra, the trade periodical on producing video games. Ramin is not an engineer, however, he's studied the physiological triggers that software engineers leverage in producing virally engaging products. We welcome Ramin on the show to hear about his background and interests in the human body and how they relate to the practice of designing software, specifically video games, and how to bring that knowledge to your own work as developers of software products. Enjoy! Welcome all, Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Uh, today, we I have the pleasure of having Ramin Shokrzad join us. Welcome, Ramin. Thank you, Max. Uh, Ramin uh, is a very well-known game economist uh, with an extremely interesting background. Um, I, I don't know where else to start, but uh, I guess let Ramin tell you a little bit about himself. himself. Uh, Ramin, do you mind mentioning to people about how you got into I, maybe the long version of how you got into video games? Um, sure. I, I, I didn't go into my current career path thinking I was going to end up where I was. It it just kind of accidentally happened or, um, well, <laughs> in the beginning, uh, I, I had a I encountered uh, my first experiences with addiction and such at a very young age. At the age of five, I started smoking, which was acceptable in my household. And after six months, I I worked my way all the way up to the unfiltered camels. And uh, then my body just said, no, this isn't going to work for us. And I developed severe asthma. So instead, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't able to do physical activity. I wasn't allowed to do pee in school for the next nine years. So instead, I got very much into gaming. Back then, it was just what you would call, I guess, analog gaming, like board games and Avon Hill games and chess and things like that. But at the same time, I grew up in Venice Beach, where the the muscle pit which was a big deal. And I used to go there all the time and hang out with the old masters that were bodybuilding and doing all kinds of aerial gymnastics way before it became a thing. Um, and they convinced me that any anything that I that was ailing me, I could overcome if I was just determined enough to to work through it. So um, at the age of fourteen, I, I went out to track brought my asthma pills with me, and just started running until the asthma attack started. I took my pill, laid down the grass, had the attack, and uh, and survived it. It was painful. And the next day, I came back, and I did it again. And the next day, and the next day, and the next week, and the next month. And after three months of doing this every day, I couldn't trigger an asthma attack no matter what I did. I threw my asthma pills away, and uh, I ultimately, instead of going into the type of quantitative uh, fields that you would expect somebody with a real strong math background to go into, I ended up becoming an exercise physiologist. My strange family ended up uh, leading me being uh, homeless at the age of 17. But by then, I was already so well known by the local track community because I went from you know, zero to super fanatic about fitness uh, during this period. Um, they took me in, and I ended up being... Uh, coached by uh, world record holders, uh, Tommy Smith. Uh, uh, before I was even an adult, I was but, uh, 17 years old training under him. Uh, so you, you found your path to an undergraduate degree at, at UCLA, is that right? 
Yes, I ended up graduating UCLA, and while I was there, I was uh, on the coaching staff. I was training uh, the UCLA women's uh, track team, and and the the USA Olympic uh, women's track squad was training with us there at Drake Stadium. So I ended up becoming the trainer for both the UCLA team and the USA team. Uh, and uh, the USA team went on to to, to set my athletes went on to set several world records that are still standing today and are considered unbeatable. This includes Jackie Joyner, Kersey, and Flojo. Exactly. Exactly. You've done your homework. Of course. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> your, your story is, is really interesting. Um, I think our audience would be very interested to hear how the experience you got in rehabilitating your own body from uh, having asthma and, and the heavy smoking to being a track athlete ties into your current career in video game economics and designing video games. Uh, what For our audience that doesn't know, what is it that you do as a video game economist? Well, uh, that's just one of the, the hats I wear, but I would say that uh, more recently I call myself a game neuroeconomist because I've added the neuroscience in so much. Uh, Basically, what I do is I create the meta games for large games as a service. So, if you play a game where you're likely to be playing with other people, and there are uh, and it's free to play, and you could play for free, but they want you to spend more, then the best way for them to do that is to create these meta game systems where there's progression systems and competition, and you want to get ahead, and you want to feel good, and all that stuff that makes you feel good between the gameplay sessions. Like because you've achieved something or advanced in some way, that's what I design in addition to all the business models. So all the numbers that support, that connect all the game elements together into a games as a service product, that's what I make. So you're actually our first guest on the show as a, a video game industry veteran. And I'm not a veteran. I mean, you're still in it. I'm curious about the... Um, some of the acronyms that are involved with describing the different game mechanics of video games that our audience may or may not be familiar with. You mentioned free to play. Yes. Uh, what, what's the distinction between a free to play game and otherwise? Well, in the past, most things that you're used to buying are retail products. You pay for it and now you get it and you own it. In free to play, we just give you the game up front and you can play it and you don't have to pay us at all. Uh, but the trick is, how do you get someone to, to pay for something that you've already given them, it to them for free? And that's actually a, a, a very complex mathematical and scientific question. Uh, and in, increasingly, the, the solution is to use mechanics that are known to trigger uh, either a compulsive or, or an addictive response to force the player to spend money on your product. Makes sense. Makes sense. So I guess one way to describe that distinction between free to play and pay to play is that with free to play games, as a as a creator of free to play games, there's adverse selection where you your audience of people who play free to play games are people who are less likely to spend money than someone who's paid to play a game. Is that is that a accurate representation? I, well, I, I'd say that 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 while that's possible, I think the most important distinction is that because it's free to play, the barrier to entry for the for the consumer is set to almost zero other than just the effort it takes to download your game. And because mm -hmm. of that, that barrier to entry is so low, 
they're very likely to uh, install your, your program, whereas otherwise they might not if there was any doubt about your product. And so that gets your product under the nose of the consumer where hopefully the rest of your mechanics will lure them into spending. So one of the interesting topics I've seen you write about as a contributing author on Gama Sutra, and you've spoken about as a guest on NPR is about the, the hormonal uh, feedback loops that exist when people play games. And I was wondering to tying it back to your experience doing athletics and coaching, what, what are, what's the tie in between video games, hormone, humans, video hormonal responses to video games and humans, hormonal responses to exercise. Well, when you're talking about training for an athletic event, besides just the technical abilities of it, that when you when you're talking about actually growing a human being, uh, there's a very specific chemicals released and certain patterns and rhythms that can be optimized for maximum growth. Here I'm talking natural, not not by you know giving somebody a drug, and and this requires a person to switch between uh, exercise and growth phases. And these are two sides of the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. And normally in a a healthy individual, you cycle naturally between these two sides of the autonomic nervous system throughout the day. Usually first thing in the morning, you you spike with a a surge of cortisol and your your sympathetic nervous system becomes active. You go around, you're alert, you're focusing, you're doing all kinds of stuff, your appetite is diminished. And then as the day goes on, you get tired, relaxed, your appetite starts to build, you relax, you eat, you go to sleep. Uh, And while you're sleeping, everything you just ate is converted into uh, tissues to repair any damage that might have occurred during the day when you were exercising. And and when you're exercising on an athletic level, you're intentionally trying to stress the body to trigger greater growth response during your downtime, during your parasympathetic nervous system activation. And then when it comes to games, what what is the general pattern that a free-to-play game uh, has on a player's nervous system? I guess it doesn't exactly parallel the hormonal response to performing exercise in that people aren't playing games to strengthen their ability to, to play free-to-play games more, but there is a hormonal aspect, which you've written about at length that I'm curious if you can tell our audience about uh, that keeps people coming back to free-to-play games? Right. Well, uh, people are most happy when there's a balance between the two sides of the nervous system. And uh, But increasingly in our society, we're pushed to do more and, and be more and more productive. So there's a lot of emphasis on us being alert all the time. It almost like uh, It's almost like uh, sleep has become a, a dirty word. Uh, we're, we're obsessed with coffee. We're obsessed with stimulants. Uh, you know, people will brag about how much coke or meth they do or whatever, and and, and how long they can stay awake. Uh, gamers often like to brag about how how long they can go on a play session without sleeping. Um, mm-hmm. When you do this, you're stressing the body uh, quite a bit, and without the equivalent rest stage, you're doing damage over time, uh, not only physically but also mentally. Um, and at the same time, in the gaming industry. We found out that uh, we're, the game industry is, is learning the science very slowly. 
So at this point, they've learned the circa 1931 neuroscience. Uh, we're, we're almost 100 years behind as far as science, but back in 1931, uh, a guy named uh, Dr. Skinner developed a, uh, uh, a, an experiment that showed that we could, we could trigger the release of dopamine in the human body by, by using these randomized reward schedules. And, uh, and this would soon become uh, addictive, and you could train an animal to do basically whatever you wanted uh, by linking this, this, uh, re this, reward, this randomized reward system to the behavior you wanted to induce. So the low-tech version of a Skinner box might be a um, casino uh, slots machine, I guess? Yeah, I would say that that's correct. And I guess there, there's uh, plenty of instances that uh, we might be able to give examples of this type of a Skinner box mechanic existing in video games today. But uh, what are some of the what are some of the hormonal downsides to <laughs> to uh, playing the Skinner box game for long periods of time? Well, uh, dopamine is on the the upside of your nervous system, the, 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 uh, the sympathetic side, the part that keeps you alert, keeps you stimulated. So, uh, if you get in these stimulation loops, like the people who get in front of a slot machine and in, in a casino, and they basically just go until they run out of money. Um, uh, when you, when you stim a person like this, you, you can create a situation, what I call stim lock, which is that exact situation where somebody stays in front of the machine until they run out of, uh, until they run out of money or someone interrupts them. And they'll lose track of time, and and being stimulated that much creates a tremendous amount of stress in the body. Uh, and without anything else to counter that, uh, the person will will be sleeping much less. Uh, they'll be prone to um, depression, especially when they stop playing. Uh, and they'll have more illness. They'll just uh, overall have a decrease in in health uh, because they're not recovering. Hmm. Is, what what are the downsides when it comes to a video game producer who makes a game with unending type of a slot machine? I know one of the topics you've written about is uh, sustainable games, ones where uh, players won't get so burnt out that they leave forever, um, and that there's there are mechanisms that that can be put in place um, by designing the game differently. So as not to overstimulate in this way, um, what are what are some of the game mechanics like that that prevent the overstimulation and people abandoning the game? Right, right. Well, when you try to just go for the quick stim, uh, your your consumers, your players, will become fatigued, uh, and once they become fatigued enough, uh, they will stop playing, or their family or their work will make them stop playing because they're it's interfering with their other uh, real life activities. Uh, so you're lucky if you get even a month out of the consumer. And, and even if you think you're doing great on the first few days, uh, they drop off so rapidly that you don't end up making much money. Uh, whereas if you can get a game that uh, actually feels right to the consumer because you're hitting it on the, uh, on the chemical level, even though the consumer isn't aware of what's going on inside them chemically, if they just feel like their, their stimulation needs are being met but they're not becoming fatigued, over time, then they can keep uh, using your product and form a bond to your product and have it become their entertainment uh, avenue of choice. 
which is the most ideal situation. And that's why uh, the games I've designed, uh, some of which I've designed in as little as like World of Tanks Blitz, I designed in only 10 weeks. Uh, and it has over 55 million downloads. And the reason uh, that and other games I've, I've done the metagame design for, like World of Warships, the reason these games uh, perform so well is because people keep playing them. They don't just play them briefly and stop. They, they enjoy them, they bind to the product, and it, they just feel good enough, but without becoming tired, that they just keep playing it. You, you described some external stimuli that stop people from playing games that have them in, in lock, like uh, family or running out of money. But what are some internal game mechanics that, uh, for example, the games you've worked on have to prevent people from burning out? Well, uh, once you're in the game and you become immersed, you can get into the stim lock and you can forget the rest of the world. What uh, the, the prevailing wisdom is that the longer a person plays your game, the more they will spend on your game. I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that's a, an oversimplification. Uh, so they try to stim lock you so that you won't leave the application and do anything else. I think that will inevitably set up a conflict between your game and the rest of the life that your consumer has. Instead, what I do is I set up uh, immersion breaks so that between a, uh, a gameplay session, which could be up to 15 minutes long, there's a break and then you, you engage with the metagame and do a relaxing activity that gives you time to recover before you go back in and start hitting it. So to, to draw a parallel to some other types of software that one might not normally think of as being a game, uh, one dominant type of software I've seen in our age <laughs> that uh, follows this Stimlock pattern that's not quite called a game is, is Facebook yes. and Snapchat and Instagram. Absolutely. I'm wondering if you, if you've if you've I, I, you haven't written anything publicly about the topic, but I'm curious if you have any um, any guidance for our listeners about what perhaps patterns to these applications that social media apps have that mirror uh, the types of Skinner boxes that exist in video games. Are, are there any? Well, um, I mentioned the words social media probably for the first time in my uh, the Physiology of Gaming paper recently, which I think you mm -hmm. read. Um, mm -hmm. There's a reason why I've been a little reluctant to go to make the crossovers there because once I do, I'm getting into a, a huge, a huge situation over there because uh, social media is such a big part of our lives, and when you start describing what's going on physiologically during social media, you're describing uh, a huge shift in the physiology of not just millions, but billions of people. And the, the, the information we're getting shows that that's not a positive shift. It's actually lowering lifespans, uh, lowering mental health. Um, and, and it's become a big enough concern that even, uh, former leaders of Facebook have come out and said that it, we shouldn't have done this. We've created a monster. Well, one of the reasons I bring it up, not to put you in a difficult position to talk about a topic you might not want to talk about, is that it seems to me like those software applications, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, are great examples of software games that have figured out how to um, 
maintain the lifetime value of a customer over a really long period of time. Like in the way that you have a perhaps Instagram profile, um, it's a lot harder to shut down an Instagram profile hormonally than it is to maybe cancel a, a game membership or just stop playing a game. Um, what What is it about social media software that uh, makes it hormonally hard to stop playing okay. <laughs> in contrast to maybe right. uh, what people more conventionally think of as video games. Right. Well, the, the part of social media uh, programs these days that the developers understand uh, that they're attempting to optimize is the dopamine delivery. And that's how they will intentionally uh, space out notifications, uh, but make sure you keep getting hit with notifications. Uh in almost randomized uh, fashion throughout the day to keep you engaged. Because again, the longer you're engaged, the more likely you are to spend, or if at least they're just depending on advertising dollars. They want your eyes on their product as much of the day as possible to the point where they will even send you notifications when you're sleeping to try to pull you out of your sleep and back into the application. Um, that's mm -hmm. the dopamine level. They know that by, by uh, randomizing this, and that's why sometimes when somebody uh, sends you a message, you don't get it right away. It's because they're intentionally trying to um, optimize the delivery times to maximize the hits you're getting so that you'll be maximally stimulated by the product. Um, that's the part that they understand or, or, or are increasingly understanding. The part that they don't understand, which is probably the more potent aspect of their product, is uh, how this interacts with a, a hormone called oxytocin, which is um, oxytocin essentially is a hormone that, uh, that when you engage in social activity with another person or even with an animal, uh, if you consider that person to be part of your tribe, then uh, it lowers your, um, your anxiety. It increases your trust for that person. Uh, you get a, a generalized sense of well-being. Uh, if, it's a very, if it's a romantic kind of connection, the, the amount of oxytocin release can be so much that you can literally be on a very intense high uh, and be very spacey. Um, and... and and by using this, they can they can pull you in. I, I personally think that oxytocin is the most powerful drug we know. Uh, there, you, you can be under under a strong oxytocin high. You can be made to do almost anything. Uh, but this is but this is this is an important survival characteristic for humans because when we feel a strong enough attachment to someone else and that other person is threatened, we will literally put our bodies between. You know, the person we love and the tiger or whatever is threatening them and, uh, and sacrifice ourselves. Um, that, that's an incredibly powerful uh, survival mechanism because it brings humans together and allows them to overcome things like tigers that individually they would have no chance of defeating, but as a group they could. So in social media settings, you have your tribe present, you have, you feel you're getting constantly reminded through the application that members of your tribe are seeing your activities or you are able to communicate with members of your tribe where you might not be able to communicate as efficiently with people or bond as efficiently with people and produce oxytocin as well when you're interacting with anonymous people over the internet playing uh, perhaps an anonymized game. Um, is there one of one of the things I suspect, and I'm curious to hear your take on, is 
with social media, there's also a, a serious narcissistic component to it, which is uh, the reminder notifications. And I think this is where Snapchat was a big innovator over Facebook was, and I'm not sure why Facebook didn't act on this sooner, is giving you information about who is seeing your activity on the social network. So uh, Snapchat, one of their features was when you send a message, they'd let you know if somebody read your message. And when you'd post a story publicly to all your uh, friends, or if you had a public account, you could see exactly the usernames of who had seen your posts. And I'm, I'm wondering, perhaps maybe, was there a reason Facebook didn't make that data more visible to their users about who was viewing your Facebook profile? I mean, was it was this really such a big innovation by Snapchat to give people insight into who's seeing their activities on the site? I would say that and, that while they understand eighty, uh, or we're, we're, we have a pretty good understanding in tech of eighty-eight year old neuroscience when it comes to dopamine delivery and optimizing for that, uh, most of the research on oxytocin has occurred in the last ten years. Uh, before that, we really had no idea what it was, uh, and um, or what we did know was just pretty misleading. With something like a like, uh, the data was showing that that it was it was improving engagement, but because of the lack of appropriate scientists in social media, uh, we didn't know why. So we just thought, let's boost these likes because if it's, it works uh, a little, let's make it work a lot. So it all it became all about the like. It became all about showing your photos. It became about getting uh, viewed or liked, uh, or, or uh, as much a much as much positive reinforcement on that level as possible. Um, which is a very weak type of uh, oxytocin stimulation. Uh, but in this case, it's just a massive amount of it. So instead of it becoming the, the type of quality we would have in real space, like having a hug or talking to somebody, looking into their eyes and, and, ha- and seeing them smile, instead of that type of qu- quality, instead we have this massive amount of quantity of very low quality stimulation on the oxytocin uh sphere so uh so all these likes people are liking their pictures uh the more clothes i take off on my pictures on facebook the more likes i get so i so i start taking off more and more clothes and pretty soon i'm a lingerie model um at the age of 13 um (laughs) and this is how we train our 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 children and because that uh this uh, this latest generation is, is supposedly three times as narcissistic as any previous generation. Um, that's because we've trained them to be that way. Uh, we reinforce them that, that this is what you have to do to be liked in our society. Um, it's not the way it used to be at all. So what, one of the big, big distinctions I think people might draw between a social media app like Instagram, Snapchat, etc., and perhaps the video games that you've worked on in your career is that there's a lot less user-generated content in a video game. What? Why is that the case? Do you, do you expect there will be uh, more games that coming out in the near future with user-generated user generated content? I would say, again, it's because the people who make computer games are are not particularly highly educated people. They mostly, they knew somebody and they got into the field or they know how to program, but they don't have a science background. Uh, so, uh, they're basically just trying to recreate, uh, the movie industry into computer games. 
but not without the understanding of what their what their role is actually in the economy, which is they're there to provide recreation to consumer, to meet consumer needs, but they don't know what those consumer needs are. So they're not quite hitting it right. Is there, is there, I mean, I'm, I'm not totally sure I buy it. I, in, in the capitalist economy, it seems like if there was an opportunity to make a user generated content based video game, I, okay. it, it well, let me give you an example of, of two user generated, uh, content games that have been highly successful but by accident because the people who made them didn't know what they why they would be successful uh the first example i would give it would be pokemon go which was uh developed uh based on a previous game where uh the users actually went out and located these stops poke stops in the case of pokemon go uh and uploaded them and each of them had a, like a picture and showed some historical information about the location and 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 these are the best part about pokemon go for me is i can go into a new town and use pokemon go to go from pokestop to pokestop and learn about the culture of the new town i'm in from what it says on each of the pokestops each of those pokestops was uploaded by a, a player uh that could did that for free and and this was done worldwide uh, so you've got a massive amount of global user-generated content. That that game would just not be nearly as interesting without that user-generated content. The second example gotcha. I would give is the game I talked about at the game development conference in St. Petersburg, Russia in 2016. And that game is called Tinder. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and, and I gave a presentation to explain why Tinder was the top mobile game in 2016. And this talk was three months before Pokemon Go came out. And I, and I, I basically uh, told them that once we create an even more social game, that there's a huge pile of money just sitting on a table out there. And as soon as we figure out how to create more social interaction on in our games, even more than in Tinder, that money will just be there for the taking for whoever hits it first. And three months later, Pokemon Go came out. And that was that uh, because people were playing in the streets and meeting new people that they, had, that they may have lived next to for five years and never met before but all of a sudden now they were getting out and meeting all their neighbors it was huge and in, in tinder you're you're again meeting the community but it's again it's just a lot of high quantity but low quality interaction and the research is showing that over time uh in all metrics evaluated uh all metrics of mental health they go down over time as you use tinder People become more and more unhappy as they as they use Tinder. So it's 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 creating the right stimulation, uh, but it's the wrong quality, and it's actually backfiring. That's interesting. You mentioned it. I mean, it, Tinder, I think, is another example where you get the same type of feedback loop as Snapchat, where maybe you don't get visibility into who's viewing your profile, but you definitely get certain type of narcissistic validation from people swiping on you and, and validating that you are somebody that other people want to engage with. At the same time, I guess it doesn't lend itself to at all building any kind of tribe. Well, it's, it's all <laughs> user-generated content, though. So that's great because you don't have to lift a finger. The users are bringing all the content to you. And it's, and it's at least at first glance, it's very high-value content because you're looking at uh, pictures, that are again designed to be as appealing as possible because these people have been through the the 
Facebook treadmill since they were 13 or younger and have learned to model for these pictures. And, and in theory, you could get laid on Tinder. Uh, and that's worth a lot to users. So um, that makes their user-generated content of very high value to the, to the consumer. Um, except for that the, the, the allure isn't really as good as the reality. Uh, I think it's uh, men, especially their connection rates on Tinder are 1.5%. Um, and, and, and in, in many cases, when people do connect on Tinder, they'll end up having casual sex. Uh, it doesn't go anywhere. Um, they, 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 come in, they come into contact, but they don't have the communication skills or the social skills because they haven't developed those on Facebook or Tinder or anywhere else in the new age uh, to develop that relationship. So they end up becoming, uh, they end up becoming just more and more anxious, uh, depressed. They're not getting the, the real oxytocin that they would get if they were reaching to the point where they'd be looking into someone's eyes, seeing them smile or hugging them or, or some sort of real um, social affirmation that, they, that would tell them that they matter to someone else. You, your work in video games has largely been not not in these type of social games like dating apps, or I guess you might even, might one might even call social media apps like Instagram and Snapchat as games. But the, you've worked more with conventional video games, I guess is the best way to call them. Do you mind Do you mind telling our audience a little bit about the types of games that you work on or that you are currently working um. on? Well, I mean, much of my work was considered theoretical for years, and and for years uh, I was I was told, well, no, what you do is just theoretical, so uh, um, we doubt it would actually work in a real game. So it wasn't until I started uh, getting hired by. It took a few years before the big companies like Microsoft or War Gaming or Take Two Interactive uh, started hiring me, and in each case, they usually kept it extremely secret that they were hiring me, um, so that people would know. Uh, that I was working with them or what I was doing. Um, then eventually I started getting the data showing that my methods were uh, very successful. Um, but uh, have I translated that to social media? Uh, once, once you're typecasted as a game gamer, it's hard to jump to another industry. And, <clears throat> and, it, and, and soon after I w- it was accepted that my research was, uh, was effective, I ended up getting tapped by the international regulatory uh, body in 2013 to advise them on how they should regulate computer games worldwide. I was the only independent uh, advisor to the ICPEN, which is the International Consumer Protection and Enforcement Network, uh, when they held their first and so far last global summit on how to regulate computer games. And I basically spilled the beans. Um, That... I think that made a lot of people uncomfortable that didn't want the beans spilled. Um, so, <laughs> so the, the beans spilling bean refers to distinguishing between games that prey on people's addictions versus the gaming industry labeling that type of consumer behavior as engagement, I guess. Is that a fair description? I, How industry calls engagement engagement I would say that in the past when we thought of entertainment it meant we got into theater we saw a movie we saw actors interacting and it was just a fun time now i showed how everything in games even aimed at even aimed at children as young as six years old uh is is 
designed scientifically or engineered in a way to stimulate and or mislead the consumer in a way that will get them to spend money. Uh, and, and in the case of six-year-olds, this is pretty easy. So when you point a whole room of, of PhDs at a six-year-old, the six-year-old really has no chance. And, and I, so I, I basically showed them slides of, of this exact kind of behavior, uh, this methodology. Um, and in, in the particular, the product I probably spent the most time focusing on was a, uh, a Disney product. Um, this didn't make Disney too happy with me. And uh, uh, Disney is a big player in this market. Um, so when I came back from, the, uh, from Panama, the summit, and I uh, was scheduled to present my findings at the GDC, which is a game developers conference. I had been double confirmed to give two talks at GDC. Uh, and then both were just canceled at the last minute. And uh, there was never any explanation. Uh, I was supposed to talk again this year. Same thing happened. Um, so besides the, the industry being weary of spokespeople for over the issue of mental health and uh, negative effects of gameplay uh, and, and the threat of regulation in the business. I think a lot of our audience are curious about the types of games that you work on and what types of game dynamics it is that you personally give input on. What, what games are you working on these days? Well, these days I'm trying to actually uh, uh, build the first games that have ever been optimized specifically for oxytocin delivery. Uh, I don't think that's ever been done before. Uh, I mean, in a couple of cases, it's happened a little bit by accident, like with Pokemon Go. Uh, but no one's ever really tried to actually make a game that would that would boost oxytocin in the users. So really, that's my goal with the two products I'm working on right now. Uh, one has been in development for over a year. It doesn't have an official name. It hasn't been announced. It's a uh, it's a massively multiplayer space game, similar to Eve Online, but it's uh, but with all the with all the boring parts taken out. It's it's all combat, but the focus isn't on me being the most powerful person in the universe. The focus is entirely on uh, my team being the most powerful team in the universe. And, uh, uh, and so I reward team play, uh, not the individual. And, and I'm kind of uh, a stickler about that because I, I want to de-emphasize the narcissism push that we have in our current games and, and get people back, focus more again on the, the social interaction. So that's... For mem members of our audience that aren't familiar with EVE online... Do you mind giving people a sense of what are the defining char characteristics of that game, Eve, in contrast to what uh, our audience might have their impression of video games? Eve Online is interesting in that it's uh, a game that launched in 2003 with just one server. Uh, and that one server, and they've never added another server. And that one server has been going continuously for 15 years. Uh it's one of the great industry success stories, um, but they've they've never been able to uh, move past the initial design to make the game better. They're, they've had very very little luck with that. Uh, so the game hasn't really exploded like it would, I think, if they uh, solved some of the core problems in that in that product. But it still managed to stay steady uh, for fifteen years, and people just play it year after year. 
it, it, it's also very unusual because it had a complete economy that was very similar to the world, the real world economy. And, uh, that allowed me in the, in the first year when I was out to actually make some observations about, uh, real world economies by watching the way the economy developed in EVE Online. Yeah, I, I, I would love to queue up our audience to go check out Ramin's article on, uh, although this, <laughs> this article was posthumously pu published after the uh, housing crash 2008, um, Ramin had some interesting commentary to say about uh, the dynamics he noticed in EVE Online's gameplay and uh, the dynamics that exist in the real estate housing market in the United States. Um, I'll, I'll include a link to that in the show notes. Um, one, one thing I want to point out for our audience that I don't think you mentioned is that EVE is a massively multiplayer online game, of course, that uh, has, uh, I guess, a real-time strategy component. Is that accurate? You are the, you uh, are the ship, and you go out and you blow stuff up with your ship. Uh, and if your ship dies, that's mm -hmm. you you well you're you're the like a little pilot in the ship, and you end up floating your 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 corpse floats around in space in a little pod, and and if and if they shoot your pod, that's the end of you. Then you have to be reconstituted somewhere else at, at a penalty. So not quite real time strategy game, but more like. Um... I don't know. Is is role playing game uh, a, a proper description? Uh, uh, somewhat, and I, I would say it's social in the sense that you you there are a lot of interdependencies in order to make everything is a player driven economy in that game. So everything that you're playing with has been built by another player, uh, and some of the bigger things require a lot of people to work together to build. I mean, I was one of the first players, and I was the richest player in Even Line when it first came out, and I was uh, building some of the first battleships in that game, and I had. 5,000 people uh, a day working for me that didn't even know they were working for me. But everything that they collected in a day went to me, and they got paid by me. And uh, and all of those resources were put together to build the very first battleships, which people were paying me a uh, 1,000 real dollars uh, for a battleship in the first couple months when that game came out. That's crazy. I, I forgot to mention, and we didn't really get to this in your intro, about how for a period of time, uh, you were legitimately making an income off of selling these in-app uh, achievements or in-app resources that you'd harvest. Um, maybe not in the way that uh, is now the reputation for um, gold farming in, in World of Warcraft, but... Uh, this was this was a real outlet for you, I guess. Do you mind sharing with our audience about that that <laughs> that experience? I mean, you kind of are touching upon it with this uh, battleship constructing in Eve Online, but what what are, what are the real dollar types of uh, incomes that people can can find through playing games? Well, like right. This? I mean, I was big into fitness, and I was a, a very successful as a coach. But I got hit by a drunk driver in 1994, and while I was reassembling myself i got into online games just as they were going online and uh when a game came out called eve online in 1999 and i'm sorry uh everquest came out in 1999 and uh i was playing this i was one of the top players and people started offering me money for items that i was collecting in the game and i was like wow I, I, i'll give you this sword and you'll give me a hundred dollars really and i was just so fascinated by this that i i quit my day job and I just started collecting all these virtual goods and selling them as a living. Uh, it, it became such a 
I just got such a strange feeling from it that I thought people should know that this is a thing. And I went to the Los Angeles Times. To my surprise, they responded to me. They hooked me up with the tech editor, uh, Ashley Dunn. And we wrote the, we co-wrote the first paper on virtual good sales in April of 2000. And, and I was so fascinated by what caused people to want to spend money on things that didn't like really even exist, uh, that this became like my vocation over time. Uh, when, when World of Warcraft came out and, and the gold farmers that I predicted in that first 2000 paper uh, basically thrashed the game, uh, I became uh, concerned enough that I thought uh, – this gold farming would disrupt the economies of these games to such an extent that they would fail. Uh, so that's when I decided I was going to become the world's first applied virtual economist and start developing new models and solutions to correct these uh, economic flaws in our game designs uh, such that we could make bigger games that were sustainable that wouldn't be uh, exploited by gold farmers. Well, I, I think our audience are probably pretty interested to see um, some links both to the article you're mentioning or the paper you wrote with Ashley Dunn in the LA Times and and also to the current studios that you work with now. If you don't mind, we can add them as um, links in the okay. show notes. The other game I'm working um, on right now that is also oxytocin-oriented, uh, I just started working with a, a very nice Canadian team with uh, a bunch of veterans from the industry. Uh, and that's a game called Destiny Sword. I can, I can give you the name because that, that name's been released uh, already. And that game's also going to be interesting in that we're actually uh, modeling uh, emotional stress and, uh, and, and mental uh, repercussions of combat in the gameplay, uh, such that you know, when in, normally in a game, if if you if you die you just hit reset and you start over and there's no harm no foul uh there's and there's no lasting effects from gameplay session to gameplay session but in this in this game there whatever you do uh this day might have a lasting effect on your character the next day or even permanently and and even change the personality of your uh of your units and your characters uh so i think that's going to be very interesting model because it's going to be much more realistic um feel than what you you've gotten in any previous game uh and the the team effects the peer effects uh everything's oriented towards uh increasing the attachment you feel for not only your care your your units but also your teammates so if it's possible to i'd love to include links to that in the show notes as well um Ramin, is, is are there any questions that I've I failed to ask that that <laughs> I'm just blanking on? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to reassure our our audience that um, I think both of us would enjoy doing this again and having going going perhaps further in depth into um, into one of the topics we covered <laughs> because God knows they can we can get pretty deep yes, into. I would, love to hear more. Rabbit hole. I would love to hear and more. It's, and it's just going to keep getting deeper and deeper because uh, it, really, if you've ever seen the Matrix series, uh, what they describe there is really not that far away. We're, we're, we're rocketing towards the Matrix at, at a rate that you it's just hard to imagine unless you know the science and, and, what, and just what, uh, how enthusiastically tech companies are embracing uh, um, what I'm starting to call physiologically driven design in, in the creation of their products. 
Agreed. I, I think one of the topics that I would love to learn a little bit more about is, th- I mean, there, there's obviously huge leaps being taken with virtual reality headsets and augmented reality headsets. Um, but I'm curious about the, the state of the art or what the, what the trajectory looks like for uh, changes in human computer input. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're mentioning Matrix, the Matrix has, has triggered me to think about how they, they plug in, they learn Kung Fu. And I, I, that's, that's another aspect of it that I'm pretty excited about <laughs> looking forward in the future is uh, not just for gaming, but for learning and, and education. How are there, are there more effective paradigms in for learning? In 2010, uh, I wrote Third Tier Game Development, where I predicted that almost uh, our entire education system would become uh, – interactive media and and we would abandon classrooms and then each individual would be able to learn at their own rate and that we could at least triple the rate of learning uh, compared to our current very archaic system, which would allow people to uh, start college or even become doctors by the time they were 14 years old. and, and, and that's important because as we advance technologically, people will have to have much higher levels of education to perform the highly specialized tasks that we'll need. And unless we can increase our lifespan, and, and, and I think our adoption of social media has actually reduced our lifespan, the only way they were going to happen is we're going to have to be able to compress education into a much smaller time frame. And that's going to require these types of methods that, that are not that dissimilar from what you saw in the matrix. Well, hot damn! <laughs> I'm look. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, we let's 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 plan to have another conversation at some point about education and video games. I I think uh, I I'll I'll pull our audience and find out what which of the topics we've talked about today are are most deserving of the next. Oh, that episode. sounds great. Awesome. Thank, Thank you, you so for joining much, us, Remy. Thanks for joining us for the Accidental Engineer Podcast. If you enjoyed our interview with Ramin and want to hear more about our professional software engineering careers, visit our website at theaccidentalengineer.com. We have a large backlog of interviews and sign up on our email list to be notified when we publish new ones.